Maybe you might remember a movie from 1995 called Waterworld. Waterworld is uh, was one of the most expensive productions ever in film. At the time, it was the most expensive production in film uh, before the Titanic. And at the helm of the production and much of uh, what went on there was a guy named Kevin Costner. And there were stories about... Uh, challenges in creating the film and, and, and things that had to do with enormous amounts of money that were spent on the film and also uh, afterwards not the greatest critical response to the film uh, it's an interesting story uh, and it's also kind of become a pop pop culture reference and things like that kind of a humorous one Waterworld and, uh, reference to uh, projects that uh are kind of driven by one person, and I uh, spent a lot of money on them. So uh, there was this one story from Waterworld, from the production of Waterworld that I heard that really got to me. You know, I was talking about early '90s, and now I'm still thinking about this story. But here's the thing: uh, Kevin Costner, he plays some character in the film. I don't know, like half man, half fish, or something, some sort of science fiction character. <laughs> And uh, in one uh, part of the movie, he is submerged in a vat of some sort of liquid. Uh, it's not water. He, he's stuck in some sort of thing, you know, some sort of uh, bog uh, of, uh, of some sort of substance. And what they used was they used orange jelly. So he was uh, he was waiting in this and um, submerged in this uh, vat of orange jelly. And I'm thinking that must have been uh, enormously expensive to, or quite expensive to create some sort of vat of orange jelly for someone to walk around in and swim around in and act in. But there was a problem, as Kevin Costner emerged from the uh, vat of orange jelly. Apparently, he said that uh, the taste was so bad that they're going to need to replace it with raspberry jelly. Now, why do I bring up the story? Um, that's what they did, by the way. They replaced it with raspberry jelly and continued to film that part. Uh, so the story goes. And I, I say that because uh, you might be doing some sort of uh, work, some sort of creative work in your life. You might be wanting uh, to use your gifts and talents to create a positive change in the world. And out of nowhere... Uh, you get stuck on something, something that you did not expect. And it's kind of interesting because, like, you know, uh, th this probably was a downer for the production crew who they're thinking, oh, we're finally going to get this scene shot, but no, we have to change from orange jelly to raspberry jelly. But it can also be, uh, you know, a challenge for Kevin Costner who wants to get this done. And, you know, he just can't do it without orange jelly taste, and we have to replace it with raspberry. I recently reached a situation where I thought I was there. I thought I was flying high uh, to get a creative project done, only to realize something came up and I was stuck. Over the past few months, I've been trying to complete uh, a recording, an album, uh, by my music project, Hard on I. Even though I've had various music project, musical projects in the past, uh, most notably, my main project was a band called The Pit That Became a Tower. Under this name, Harlow Denai, which really is the same kind of music as The Pit That Became a Tower, uh, I have yet to produce, uh, to release uh, a full-length album, a new album. So I'm working on it, I'm working on it for the past few months, and stuff, stuff got in the way. 
Life, um, all kinds of life circumstances uh, caused me to uh, put it on the shelf, including uh, some serious uh, personal tragedy. But there came a time where I just really had to get up and get this project going. How do I, how do I get this project going again? What's the block? Now, so far, I had recorded uh, drums, bass, guitar, and rhythm guitar. So there was a good solid bass. You could actually hear there were songs there. I recorded a, a, a scratch vocal, a demo vocal, just so you could hear me singing, just to know what's going on. It wasn't the final vocals. And I have this thing in my hand. I'm thinking, how do I finish it? How do I come and bring all the layers of instrumentation? And, and how do I tell my story here in this music? I thought, well, oh, maybe I could do it at home. You know, today people can do uh, so much at home with home studios. Really, there's so much you can do, and that's nice to hear that. But uh, it's another different thing to actually do it, to actually create your own home studio and actually make it happen uh, at home. It's hard enough just doing the music, to do the music and the recording and the production and the engineering all on your own. Uh, it's really hard. I remember trying to do it years ago. And it was like doing the job of three people, the, you know, the, the artist and the producer and the engineer. I even found myself getting three times as tired and three times as hungry when I was doing all that. And, and, and you know, great job for people who can do this, who, who really do this. But for me, it was very hard. Also, I have eight kids. It's not really uh, conducive to my lifestyle to have that home recording set up. I'd love to have it one day. But uh, there's some awesome studios that I got in touch with and uh, some really nice studios where I can come and, and record. But these studios, there was something wrong. The, the problem was is that I had to be ready when I showed up. I had to be ready to go lay down tracks. Studio time is valuable. People's time is valuable. And uh, it, was just, it was just really hard to go into a studio and not being sure what I wanted to do. And it put strain on me and the technicians and stuff like that. So finally, I realized what I needed. What I needed was really a place where I could be free, a place where I could experiment and create the sounds that I wanted to create. But I also had to be with the right people. It's not just uh, you want to do these things. You have to be people who, people who understand the sound that you're trying to achieve. And finally, uh, I called up my friend, Benjamin Esterlis. He's a great guy. I call him Benny. And he's also known as his artist name, Morflexus. He's a recording artist, a producer, a videographer, real talented guy. And uh, I said, hey, man, you know, what I need is I need to see this space, this space to, to be free and create my music. And uh, if you remember my last episode, I hear on Beauty Truth, the last episode talked about creating uh, a place where people can get lost, like uh, from the movie Inception, creating a maze someone can get lost in. Uh, that's a beautiful thing. If you can create a space where someone can, can, can have a unique experience and get lost there, that's a great thing. And that's what Benjamin created for me. I was able to go uh, to his home and uh, do that experimentation. This is Adam Rosenfeld here, and you're listening to Beauty Truth, a podcast about Finding and Creating Beauty and Truth, brought to you by my music project, Haudonai, Indie Rock from Jerusalem, Israel. Go to Haudonai.net and check out my new single, Let the Sword Do Double Damage, live from the base of Mount Zion. You can get that for free over at Haudonai.net. And go, if you like what you hear, go to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast and even check out the, phone, the, the episode notes where you can learn more and uh, even find out how you can support this podcast on Patreon. So here I am 
in Benjamin Estrellis's bedroom for about two days, trying to flesh out and uh, bring a life and layers to my songs that I created. And Benjamin pulled out the secret weapon that made, it, made all the difference. A Fender Jaguar guitar and a Big Muff pedal. Big Muff distortion pedal. If you're familiar with this stuff, these are things in the arsenal of quite a few indie rockers, primarily from the 90s, not the least of which would I mention Jay Massis of Dinosaur Jr. I am using his secret weapons. And uh, having a Benjamin pull that stuff out for me was a huge help. And after two days in his room, I was elated to leave with seven fully formed songs. They had the textures and, and, and they just, they were real to me. And I want to be clear about something. I hadn't had an experience like that. I hadn't felt that way about 15 years. I'd been doing different music projects here and there, uh, maybe recording a song here, recording a song there, uh, playing in other people's uh, projects, other people's recordings, this and that. But to actually go and record a group of songs and, and bring them to life and that kind of richness, it had been a long time for me. And uh, I remember I, uh, I was leaving his home and I was doing a long drive home to Jerusalem. I stopped at a hummus joint. That's what we have over here in Israel. And I just uh, got myself something to eat and just to think about this process. And I realized that I felt so great right now. I was listening to, uh, in, my, in my ear, listening to what we came, what we created in the studio. And I was just so excited that I had to take a picture of myself in that moment so that I would remember the moment. It happened to be in the mirror of the bathroom there, which is not the greatest place, but still, I just had to somehow document this moment to remember how great I felt. Why? Why would I do that? Why would I stop and take a photo of myself just to, 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 to tell myself how great I feel at this moment? Because I knew that I probably wouldn't always feel this way. Even in this awesome project where it didn't feel like it could, it could in any way get ruined or any way uh, feel bad, you know, it just felt like it was flying high. I knew that there might be a place where uh, it might not feel that great. So I just took that photo to remind myself um, how great I felt at the moment. And sure enough, uh, the album, it's, it's well on its way to being done. This is something that's been really about a year of work for me, this album. And um, I came home with my recorded songs and I realized, okay, it's time to do proper vocal recordings. I did not do the real vocals. Okay, I cannot release what I just created as much as I love it. It's, it's great for me. It's great to listen to at home in the kitchen. My wife and I love it. It's fun to show it to the kids, but it's not ready. It's not ready for you to listen to. It's not ready for the public to listen to. I had to put real vocals on there. And so once again, I called up my man, Benny. I said, I'm coming back over to your house. Let's do those vocals. So we were flying high. It's like, let's talk. Let's do them, you know. And things started to get uh, less cool. I uh, came into his home. He has, he's got an awesome vocal recording set up. And I began singing song after song. And I began hearing myself, how I sounded. And it didn't sound right. I heard my own voice. I don't even know how many times I went off key. We were recording take after take well into the night. You know, he said, sing loud like Brian Adams, sing quiet like Frank Sinatra or Elliot Smith or Nick Drake. 
sing rough like Johnny Cash or Nick Cave or you sing like Sufjan Stevens or Beck, all kinds of ways I was trying to sing, like uh, to, to, to change my voice and to make it sound right and to fit the song. And Benjamin was doing a great job uh, directing me, but I got tired and I got lost in all these vocal takes. And I was asking myself, was I really getting these songs done? And after two days, I felt like I missed the mark. I felt like I hadn't accomplished what I set out to do. And I hit a low point. I wasn't elated like I was the last time I left the studio, where I took a photo of myself and was so excited. This time, I felt like the project, and even the band, the music project, was over. I felt like this was the end of this album and the end of Hard or Night. Like I'll never really be able to sing my songs. Because I heard my own voice, and I said, wow. I can't, I, I felt like I don't have what it takes. And I understand. I've been recording music for years in different ways, playing music for years. Never had an experience this bad with vocals. I have a friend, his name is Kobe Ferguson. He comes from a rock drumming background, and today he's more of an executive producer type. But we had a little talk, and I told him about um, how it went in the studio. He wanted to know. He's personally invested in this project. He wants to see me succeed in his heart. And uh, I told him that, you know, well, things went great with the guitars, but when I started laying down the vocals, I just felt off. I felt crushed. And they did something in a degree of gentleness. Uh, he slapped me in the face. Again, nothing crazy. But he told me to bounce back. And that was exactly what I needed. The best thing I could say, best assessment I could give, is that in my creative project, I hit the dip. This is a, a term that comes from author Seth Godin. He wrote a book called The Dip, and he uses it to gauge whether you should keep going or whether you should quit. It would think that the really the only value is to keep going, keep going through the dip. The dip is, is the valley, not the mountain. But it might even be time to quit, depending on other factors. Maybe think of other people who got in situations, in dips. I remember uh, having kids, maybe you're familiar with uh, the children's production VeggieTales. A lot of parents uh, have their homes infested with VeggieTales material more uh, years ago than, than today. But uh, one time, VeggieTales, he's uh, a faith-based uh, computer-animated uh, entertainment for children, uh, one time, they wanted to move from creating uh, episodic material, short episodes, to creating a feature-length film that would be out, you know, in the theaters. And they created a movie based on the Bible story of Jonah. I remember hearing about this project because they, as computer animators, created this whole movie. And when it was done, it had to render. If you're familiar with computer animation, and I am no expert in computer animation, but I do know that there is a rendering process. There's a process that it just kind of takes to load. It's kind of like uh, you tell the computer what to do and then it has to load. It has to load what you created. But here's the thing. Do you know how long it takes for things to render? I don't know what it's like today. I don't know what it's like for Pixar and other studios, but I do know a little bit about the story of VeggieTales and the movie Jonah. It took a month. People working so hard in this movie have to stop and wait a month to see what they uh, created. And during that time, as the movie was rendering, 
they, gave, they began to think, is this really going to work out? Is this really going to turn out? Is all our work really going to come out? Is this move really going to happen? And they had to bring people called, I don't know much about this, but they call them render sleuths to come in and check the computer processes to see that things are going right. Now, could you imagine any kind of creative project you do? Let's say you're, you're cooking a steak. Let's say you're making a music project. Let's say you're writing a book. Let's say all kinds of things. Imagine having to stop and wait a month to see uh, the next step. That must be really hard. I was also thinking about the movie Return of the King, which was an Oscar winner and huge epic of epics, of epic epicness. You can uh, imagine the Battle of the Palinar Fields, one of the greatest on-screen battles in film, and how much they worked to finish uh, this movie with its rigid deadline. It was, you know, one movie a year, I think, or one movie every two years. I think it was one movie a year for three years. And it was interesting to learn that director of the director of uh, Return of the King, Peter Jackson, when did he see the final take of the film? He only saw it at the film's premiere. There was a kind of dip in the end of just uh, doing whatever it took to get that thing to ship. So I'm loosely borrowing from Seth Godin's uh, concept of the dip. I'm not an expert in what he talks about. You can, you can learn about it yourself. I'm not an expert about it, but I'm just talking about it uh, from what I know about it. But I felt like I hit the dip. I felt that at once, one, at one point I was elated, and now I'm in the dip, and I have to figure out, I'm in the valley, I'm figuring out how to get this project done. So I thought about, uh, what do you do to not quit? And I could really only think of two Two or two main things that helped me. One was to have goals. I annually use a goal setting process that I learned from author Michael Hyatt in his book, Your Best Year Ever. Every year I go through his goal setting process. And I set a goal this year to finish this recording. Actually, pretty soon, the deadline is pretty soon to get that recording done. So I had that goal staring at me. I review it on a weekly basis. So every, every, every week I look at it and I'm like, even if I'm in the dip, I say, hey, there's that goal. What do I do? What's the next step to climb out of where I am? Another thing that really helped, and this is a huge help, is a concept from Greg McCowan, the author of Essentialism, who talks about rating things in your life on a scale of 1 to 10. And uh, if something is not a 9 or a 10, I think what he said, that if something's not a 9 or 10, you should get rid of it. And there were things in my life like creating uh, a skateboard brand, creating a web design agency, becoming a comic book investor. And all these things uh, had different numbers between 1 and 10. Most of them were around 8. The skateboard brand was a nine, but only creating music was number 10. And when I figured that out, I realized that I had to put the other things aside and focus on my number 10. I cut out everything but the number 10. I still have a job, of course, I have a normal life, but as far as my goals, the things that I'm gonna pursue in the margins of my time, um, my heart, passion projects, I, life is too short to, uh, you know, pursue other stuff. Not getting any younger. So, 
having music as my number 10 and having a goal to finish my album helps me get out of the dip. And here's a quote from Seth Godin's book, The Dip, uh, via Sam T. Davies. He's a great guy at uh, summarizing books and creating book summaries. He says, the decision to quit or not is a simple evaluation. Is the pain of the dip worth the benefit of the light at the end of the tunnel? And I weigh that against having a goal, finishing an album, and having a number 10 in my life of making music. And so in the end, I can't even consider this. This is not even a question. I need to get through the dip. This is my life. I'm Adam Rosenfeld, and you're listening to the podcast, Beauty Truth, about my lifelong search to find and create beauty and truth, brought to you by my music project, Haradonai, Indie Rock from Jerusalem, Israel. Go to my website, haradonai.net, H-A-R-A-D-O-N-A-I.net, and get my new single, Let the Sword Do Double Damage, live from the base of Mount Zion. Get that for free over at the website. And if you like what you heard, go to iTunes and subscribe. Check out this episode's show notes to learn more about what I'm talking about and how you can support this podcast on Patreon. Now I want to leave you with a unique part of my musical journey with a song that was really my first uh, studio, full studio produced song uh, from my project, The Pit That that Became a Tower, which today is known as Hard on I. And with that first burst out of the gate, with that first song, that song got picked up for a compilation, an international compilation from Deep Elm Records called This Is Indie Rock, Volume 1. first song uh, was this song, which felt really great. It was even licensed to MTV and it got a lot of exposure. Didn't make me, I don't think, any money. But uh, I think uh, it's a great song, it's a strong song, and I'm happy to share it with you. It's called... I must save the president. Thanks for listening. Have an awesome day.